I am delighted you've made it your decision to be here with us this evening, and I hope you've brought your Bible and eager to take that and study along with us as we talk about things that have to do with serving God and going to heaven in the after while. As I mentioned this morning, here are the lessons that we have planned for the week. I'll mention these each time I'm before you to remind you which particular lesson you may want to bring someone to hear. Tomorrow night, we'll be talking about Alas, My Brother. It's a study of two prophets found in 1 Kings chapter 13. And that'll be the one you want to bring your non-Christian friend or neighbor to hear if there's only one night you can bring them. On Tuesday, we'll talk about selling and stirring, selling ourselves to do evil because someone may be stirring us up. And then on Wednesday, we'll raise the question David raised concerning his own son, is the young man safe? How do you make the young man safe? We'll talk about that on Wednesday. And then on Thursday, things that encourage what are some things that encourage us as we try to serve the Lord? And we may find that there are some things that, encourages, that encourage us that we didn't think was encouraging. And so we'll talk about that come uh, Thursday night. And then Friday we'll close by looking at the earnest cry of Bartimaeus. Come back and be a part of all of those studies. Deuteronomy 29 in verse 29 was read to you just a moment ago. And that is the basis of our study for tonight. The text says in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things that are revealed, which are revealed, belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. What is that about? What's that saying? What's the point? Well, let's look at the context and better understand the point of Deuteronomy 29 and verse 29. You remember that there were four, you may take the position that there were three, but I think there were four major speeches that Moses was making, four sermons that Moses makes on the verge of, of entering into the land of Canaan. So for a 30-day period, as Smith calls it, he called it a 30-day revival, where they are what we would call a gospel meeting. Here is a period of 30 days where Moses is lecturing the people in four sermons. If you take the idea that it's three sermons, then in the second of those, we have this message of chapter 29. I think it was in the third of four sermons that this message is made in Deuteronomy chapter 29. So what's the point of Deuteronomy 27, 28, and 29? The point of those chapters is a renewal of the law. And so here is Moses trying to instill a respect for the law and obedience to the law. So in Deuteronomy 27, let's back up. If you've already turned to Deuteronomy 29, let's turn to Deuteronomy 27. In Deuteronomy chapter 27 in verse 11 beginning, here was the blessings and the curses. For example, notice that he said, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. And then in verse 13, and these shall stand on Mount Ebal to curse. And now we then have a whole list of blessings and curses that if you obey God, here's the blessing. And if you disobey God, here are the curses that come upon you. We'll not go through all of those, but you see those. You may even have some things underlined in your Bible about cursed is the one who does this and cursed is the one who does that. Well, we come to chapter 28. We have the blessings if you're obedient, verses 1 to 14. From 15 on, we have the curses if you disobey. Now we come to chapter 29. In chapter 29, you have the outline before you of what developed in chapter 29, what's going on. Well, in chapter 29, here is the point Moses is making. Obedience to God is based and should be based upon God's grace to us. 
So he says this, notice beginning at verse two, I'm just going to summarize these verses. In verses one to three, he said, we were delivered out of the land of Egypt. That was God's grace. At verses five and six, he led us through the wilderness. That was God's grace. Notice in verses seven and eight, we defeated two kings on the east side of the Jordan River, Sihon and Og. That was by God's grace. So his conclusion to that at verse 9 is, therefore keep the words of this covenant and do them that you may prosper in all that you do. We ought to be obedient to God based upon the grace of God. Now beginning at verse 10, here is a call to enter into the covenant. Notice beginning at verse 10, he calls for the leaders and the elders, verse 11, the little ones, verse 12, that you may enter into a covenant with the Lord our God. So here is a call to enter into the covenant. We see that again at verse 14, I will make a covenant with, uh, I'll make this covenant an oath and not with you alone. So here is the call to come into a covenant relationship with God. Now, beginning at verse 16 through the end of the chapter, we have this warning concerning departing from the covenant. So let's notice these, these warnings. Notice at verses 16 to 18, and I'm going to paraphrase. He said, you saw the absurdity of idolatry. That you saw in Egypt the idolatry, the abominations of idolatry, the absurdity of that. So you ought not to be tempted to turn to idolatry. Verse 19, he said, that you may not turn. And I'm paraphrasing again, that you might not turn from the Lord. This is what this is about. Don't turn to the side and don't be like the drunkard who's included among the sober. In other words, don't think I'm going to turn to idols, but I'm still a servant of God. Don't think that. Now, at verse 20 to 21, we see the Lord's wrath would be stirred and one would not be spared who turns against his God. It's a plea for obedience. Now, 22 to 28, this needs to be reported to the next generation. How so? What are we going to tell the next generation? Well, when these curses come upon the nation because they didn't follow the law of the Lord, you tell that generation when they ask, what is this all about? Look at verse 20. You tell them because they have forsaken the covenant of our God. You tell the next generation, that's why that happened. Now then he comes to his conclusion at verse 29, and his conclusion is in verse 29, we need to do all that God says. But he's not worded that way. Here's what he says. He said, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. That's his point. So what is the point of Deuteronomy 29, 29? The secret things belong to the Lord. Those things which are revealed belong to us. Well, as Barnes says, he says, the sense seems to be this. The future, when and how these good and evil things will take effect, it lies with the Lord our God to determine. It pertains not to man's fear and duty. God's revealed will is that which we must carry out. Exactly. That's the point being made. Bratcher and Hatton said a possible alternative translation model for this verse would be this. The Lord our God has not revealed certain things to us and our descendants, but he has revealed his law to us. We and our descendants must obey it forever. There's just some things God hadn't revealed. Colin David said that which is revealed includes the law, which <clears throat> that which is revealed includes the law with its promises and threats. Consequently, that which is hidden can only refer to the mode in which God will carry out in the future his counsel and will, which he has revealed in his law and complete his work of salvation, notwithstanding the apostasy of the people. 
Deer said this. He said, the secret things of the Lord probably refer to the future details that God has not revealed. Yet what he has revealed, future judgment for disobedience, future blessing for obedience, his requirements for holiness was enough to encourage the Israelites to follow all the words of the law. Hopefully that's helpful to you. Here's what we've seen. There's some things that are secret and there's some things that are revealed. By the secret things, we're talking about things that God has not revealed. By the things that are revealed are things that God has revealed to us. Now, what is it that would be among the secret things that God has not revealed? The specifics of how and when all the details of the curses and the blessings of the law. So cursed is the one who disobeys God. Well, when's that going to take place? Exactly how? He didn't tell us. Well, blessed is the one. Well, how is God going to bless him? And when's he going to do that? Give me all the details. God didn't reveal that. But what he did reveal, what he did say was, here's the law, here's the commandments, here's what you're to do. And that's all we need to know. So just do it. That's the point of Deuteronomy 29, 29. Now, I said all of that to make a simple point that I probably could have just said without saying all that. And here's the point. It is important that we know that there are some things we don't know. Now, lest you not know that, I'm going to say that again. <laughs> it is important that we know there are some things we don't know. The secret things belong to the Lord. We don't know those things. I always liked, didn't always agree, but I always liked Secretary of Defense Don Rumsfeld. I was watching a news conference one day when he was explaining things going on in the war in Afghanistan, and he made this statement, and it was kind of puzzling, and the news media had a fit about this. Thought it was just absolutely absurd, but I liked what he said. Listen to this. He said, as we know, there are known knowns. There are things that we know we know. There are also, we also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we don't know. But they're also unknown unknowns, the ones we don't know we don't know. <laughs> Rumsfeld defended that and wrote a book about it. And he's right about that. There are things we know we know, and then there are things we know we don't know too. So let's talk tonight about things we don't know. And we need to be reminded, we don't know that. And we may be venturing sometimes in our comments and in our statements and maybe even in our teaching into areas where we don't know that. So let's talk about some things we don't know. Let's start with this. We do not know when the Lord will return. Now let's establish what we do know. We do know the Lord will return. So let's get our Bibles and turn to John chapter 14 and in verse 3. Look at John chapter 14 and in verse 3 and notice what the Lord said. I go to prepare a place for you and I will come again and receive you. I'm not going to read every word of every verse because I want to get just the concept before you. Jesus said, I will come again. So I know he's coming again. Well, let's go to Acts chapter 1 in verse 11. The angel said, as you saw him ascend into heaven, you'll see him come in like manner. So I know he's coming back. I know the Lord is going to return. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians, if you will. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and in verse 19. 1 Thessalonians 2 and in verse 19. For what is our hope and joy and crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? 
So I know and I can know and I can be assured that indeed the Lord is going to return. But the Lord has not revealed when he will return. Now let's go to a passage in the book of Mark. Matthew says essentially the same thing, but I want to turn over to the book of Mark chapter 13, the parallel account to that that we don't know the time when he's going to return. Jesus was asked two questions, you remember? In Mark 13 and in Matthew chapter 24, what's the sign of your, when will these things be, the destruction of Jerusalem, and what's the sign of your coming? They thought that was the same question, but really they were two questions. And Jesus answered them as two. And I want you to notice now, when he answers that, he says, now at verse 32 of Mark 13, Mark 13, 32, There were signs concerning the coming of the destruction of Jerusalem, but at verse 32 now, he said, verse 32, but of that day, that is verse 31, had to do with the destruction of the earth, that is heaven and earth will pass away, but of that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the sun, but only... So who knows about the day of the coming of the Lord? Well, the day of the coming of the Lord is only known by the Father. Angels don't know that, nor does the Son know that. So how can I begin to think I know the day of the coming of the Lord? So we don't know the day nor the hour. We don't know the time. I do know this. It will come suddenly and unexpectedly. Both of these passages before you, 2 Peter 3, 10, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 says you'll come as a thief in the night. You know how a thief operates. He doesn't come and knock on the door of the night before, get everything ready. You have 24 hours to get ready for my coming. He doesn't do that. Comes unexpectedly and suddenly and as a surprise. Well, Matthew chapter 24 tells us, as well as Luke chapter 12, there will be no signs concerning it is nearing. When concerning the destruction of Jerusalem, you'll see the signs. You'll see the wars and rumors of wars and pestilence and famine. But of this day and hour, there is no, there is no warning, according to Matthew chapter 24. Turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Let's look at Luke chapter 12, if you will, and look at verse 40. Luke chapter 12, and notice verse 40. We will skip verse 46. It's also on the screen before you. But verse 40, the ending of the statement about a parable, therefore you be also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, if there is some sign indicating he's coming, it's coming, it's getting closer and getting closer, then there is a warning, it's nearing. So we don't know that. Now, here's what that means to us. Since I don't know that, any prediction or speculation is absolutely worthless. Usually when war breaks out, the one in Europe right now is not so much stimulating this, it is a little bit, but not like it does when it's in the Mideast. So when something is going on in the Mideast, Here are people who rush to the microphone and they rush to the press saying, here we know the Lord is coming again. When the first Gulf War broke out in, what is it, 91, I think it was, the the bookshelves were flooded in Zondervan bookstores. You could walk in and there would be 10 or 12 or 15 different new books that just come off the press. The end of time is near. How do we know? Because war just broke out in the Mideast. What I'm suggesting to you is that is absolutely worthless. It furthermore means I need to be ready at all times. Go to 2 Peter chapter 3. You remember verse 10? Verse 10, it just said, we do not know because he's going to come as a thief in the night. Verse 11 says, are you reading with me? Therefore, since since all these things will be dissolved. In other words, since he is coming back, you don't know when, what manner of persons ought ought to be in holy conduct and godliness. So what that means is I need to be ready at all times. 
All right, here's the second thing I don't know. I don't know when we will die. None of us know that. Now, we can know that we will die if the Lord doesn't return first. We can know that. In fact, there is a day that one would die. There's a time to be born and a time to die. The Ecclesiastes writer said, you remember that story well, Ecclesiastes 3. You remember how the psalmist had said that man's days are like 70 to 80 years, and if by reason of strength they continue, again, I'm paraphrasing, then they'll be cut off and will fly away. There's a time in which you're going to die. As in Adam, all die, so in Christ we'll all be made alive. Well, we can be assured, and I can know, that if the Lord doesn't return first, that we're going to die. But we don't know the day of our death. Genesis chapter 27, turn there with me. Jacob said, in Genesis chapter 27, and in verse 2, he said, I, he said, behold, now I am old and I do not know the day of my death. Well, the fact he's saying he's old, he knows it's coming, getting closer. He said, I don't know it. Now, I can know it's getting closer. Our salvation is nearer than when we first believed, Romans 13, 11. So I can know that if I live tomorrow, I'm a day closer than I was yesterday. I know that much. But we don't know the day of our death. It's possible you could experience a premature death, as often happens. None of us have the assurance of another day. David said, there is but a step between me and death, 1 Samuel 20 and in verse 3. So what does that mean to me? You say, I already knew that. What does that mean to me, though? That means that I don't know that I will live as long as I'd like to live. I might be making plans for the future. We'll say more about that toward the end of our study. I may be making plans for the future. James would warn you that say today or tomorrow we'll go into the city and continue there for a year and buy and sell and get gain. Your life's a vapor that appears for a little while and then it vanishes away. It means I need to be ready at all times in case I do die because I don't know the day of my death. And it means I need to understand and appreciate the value of the time we have. I don't know. I don't know how long I'll have. And therefore, since I don't know that I need to live in harmony with the will of God. Let's talk about something else we don't know. We don't know specific acts of providence. Now, the first two points are quite easy. You say, well, I know I don't know when the Lord's coming back. And I know also don't know the day of my death. But we don't know specific acts of providence. Now, we'll see what we mean by that. Here's what we do know. We do know that God works in his providence. I know that God answers prayer. James 5 and verse 16, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The eyes of the Lord, 1 Peter 3 says, are over the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. Verse 12. So I can know God hears and God answers our prayers. The same thing is seen in 1 John chapter, that we, uh, chapter 5 verses 14 and 15. We have this confidence that whatever we ask, he gives unto us. So I know that we ask and God answers our prayers. I can be assured of that. I can know not only that God answers our prayers, but there is great power in prayer. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Doesn't avail something, but avails much, the text says. All right, so I know God hears and answers prayer. I can know that God works and is active in the lives of men. That's what we call providence. That's providence. Let's define providence. Providence, Brother Haley suggested in his work on providence, means Simply the working of God through his provision in the natural and spiritual realms and yet is a control that violates neither the sovereignty of the human will nor the divine natural and spiritual laws. 
I think that's an accurate definition, not because Haley said it, but because it fits any concept of finding the Bible about providence. But let's go further. The word providence is found in Acts 24 and in verse 2, but it's not with reference to God. But the word providence there simply is the word that means forethought, according to Vines. So when we talk about the providence of God, we're talking about God using providence, using forethought in creating a universe that he could control and use for his purpose. We see the word provide within the word providence. God provides for his purpose. Providence is the non-miraculous use of natural law and circumstance to accomplish his purpose. Winston Atkinson said in Anchor Magazine, it is the divine intervention in the affairs of men within the confines of natural law. So simply stated, when we're talking about providence, we're talking about God working through natural means. Now let's distinguish that from miracles. You have two things, two boxes on the screen before you. On the one side, you have birth of a child and you have a change in the weather. On the other side, you have the birth of a child and the change in the weather. But they're not the same thing. On the one side, under the matter of providence, we have the birth of a child like Samuel. There's no indication that that was something miraculous like the virgin birth. But we have on the other side, the virgin birth of Jesus, which was entirely miraculous. He was born of the Holy Spirit. Both children were born, but one was by natural means. The other, it was by miraculous means. We have on the one side, the change of the weather, which was miraculous. Jesus calming the storm. Peace be still, and it was calm. The weather changed. But in James 5, one of the, one of the uh, illustrations that James gives that the effectual fervent prayer of, of us, our fervent prayers avails much, he turns and talks about Elijah praying that it wouldn't rain and pray that it would. Remember that? Was not have been miraculous. One has to do with natural means. The other is supernatural means. So we're not talking about miraculous things. We're talking about God working within the confines of natural law. Listen to this carefully. We don't have to know how God answers prayer, just the fact that he does. See, I can be assured I can pray to God and God answers my prayer, and I don't have to know, was this an answer to that prayer, or was that an answer of prayer, or is my answer being delayed? I don't have to know that. I just need to know and be assured God answers my prayer. We don't know or see when God is acting. Let's look at a couple of passages here. Let's turn to the book of Esther. On providence, if you don't get any other passage or any other point, let, let's, let's take a look at this. Go to Esther chapter 4. This is a statement Mordecai made about Esther coming to the throne. Now, we as the reader can see God's providence in the book that through her coming to the throne, Esther coming to the throne, the Jews were spared. But Mordecai has no reason to see that. He has no revelation in order to see that. So here's his wording of that when he doesn't know for sure. He said, look at Ezra, uh, Esther chapter 4 and in verse 14. He said, for who knows, I'm at the end of the verse, whether you come to the kingdom of, for such a time as this. Now he didn't say, I know, I, I, I know, I know God put you here to save the Jews. I know that. He didn't say that. He said, who knows? It just may be. Well, he was right about that, wasn't he? But he didn't know. For sure. Let me give you another example where that kind of terminology is used. Let's turn to Philemon 
Turn to the book of Philemon and look at verse 15. Philemon verse 15, as Paul is is sending this runaway slave back, notice he said, for perhaps, look at verse 15, that he departed for a while that you may receive him forever. He didn't say, I know, I know this. I know this is God's working. I know, I know for sure that his departure was so he would come back and you'd receive him forever. But he said, perhaps. That's biblical terminology. See, we don't know nor see all of God's working. Here's what that means to us. We need to be careful in stating how we know what and how God answers prayer. We ought to take full confidence God is answering our prayers. God does answer prayer. But when I begin to say, I tell you what, I know God did this. God did this so this would happen. How do you know? How do you know that? Are you sure? How do you know that? Maybe my language would be better to say, who knows but what God did this? Or perhaps God did this. Because you see, we don't know specific acts of providence. Something that we're ready to label as God acting, you better be careful because it may turn south, or as Bill Hall says, it'll turn sour on you. It may turn sour on you. And then you think, well, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't have labeled that as God's working because it just turns south on us. And so maybe our language ought to be reflective of the fact there's some things we don't know. I don't know specific acts of providence. I don't know that. I know that God does that, but I don't always know this is a case or that is a case of providence. Here's something else we don't know. Specific acts of God ruling in the nations. We talked about that this morning from Daniel chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 4. Now, we do know that God rules in the kingdoms of men. We saw this in Daniel chapter 4. If you don't have this marked in your Bible, perhaps this would be a good time to to find this passage and underline and mark some things in Daniel chapter 4. We won't read the entire verses, but look at Daniel 4. At least three times, more times than that, but at least three times in the text. I want you to notice beginning at verse 17. That at verse 17, that the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men and gives it to whomever he will. Now, when you get through marking that, turn down to verse 20, uh, 25. Till you know the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. And then drop down to verse 32, you see the same thing. The Most High rules in the kingdoms of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. So I can know God rules in the kingdoms of men. Now, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 9. This is a fascinating passage to me. This is the longest in, Deuter- in, in uh, Nehemiah chapter 9, the longest prayer recorded in the Bible, and it's also the most thorough and complete survey of the Old Testament history given in one setting as a summary, that is. But I want you to notice in verses 6, 7, and 8, mark three things. I want you to see three things that took place. At verse 6, he said, you alone are God, and you have, notice this word, made Heaven, the heaven of heavens, and all their host. Now, what have I learned from verse 6, the first part of it? I learned that God created a world. All right, now what else does he do? Look at the end of verse 6. And you, here's a key word, preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. God created a world, number one. Number two, he preserves and controls that. For what? Look at verse 7. You are the Lord God, and you chose Abram. In other words, he carries out his purpose. 
You see what we just saw in Nehemiah chapter 9, 6 to 8? What we just saw is God created a universe that he controls for carrying out his purpose. That's providence. That's what providence is all about. He created a world. He preserves it. He controls it so that he carries out his purpose. That's providence that we've been talking about. So I know God rules and controls the world for his purpose. God rules in the kingdoms of men. We noticed this morning, Revelation chapter 4, that throne scene. The whole purpose of the throne scene is to say God is on his throne and he's in control. I know from Habakkuk 1, we noted this morning, God can use a nation as a tool. In other words, it may be, and I know he was using Babylon because God said so. And it was a very wicked nation, but God used that as a tool to punish Judah. Habakkuk had a hard time accepting that. So God might be using nations today, but I don't know specifics concerning that. You see, we don't know the specifics of how God rules in the kingdoms of men. We don't know what God is doing. If someone says, I, I know God is, is raising up Russia and he's punishing some, do you know that really? Maybe he is. He can, can he? But is God using Russia? Maybe he is. I don't know. I just don't know specific acts of God ruling in the nation. I don't know the timing of his actions. Well, God's doing this, and I know what God's going to do next. He's going to, really? Or I know God, God raised up uh, this man to be our president to salvage our nation, or I think God brought this one in to destroy our nation. You don't know that for sure. We don't know the reason for God's action. Why is this being allowed? I don't know. Why is God allowing Russia to do what they're doing? I don't know. You don't know either, but I know God rules in the kingdoms of men. God can raise up leaders to better a nation or bring it down and destroy a nation. We don't know about a specific leader. I can't speak up and say, you know what? I think God put this man in office to make this a better nation. And I can't say, you know, God put this man in. I think he's going to destroy our nation. And I think that's a punishment God is bringing because that's what he's doing. I think God did that. I don't know. I know God rules in the kingdoms of men, but I can't speak with certainty what God's doing. God can punish a nation economically. He did that in the Old Testament, didn't he? He can punish a nation with a drought and with a disease, but I don't know specifically. I can't say, I'll tell you what's going on. I think this virus was a punishment of the nation. Really? You think so? Maybe it was. I don't know. If we're threatened by another nation, that may be God punishing us. It may be. I don't know. We don't know specific acts of God ruling in the nations. Here's what that means. It means we need to be careful in our wording about what we say. Be very careful. It means not knowing specifics doesn't mean, though, that I don't know that God rules in the kingdoms of men. God's still on his throne. He's in control. He's ruling in the kingdoms of men. But I don't know the specifics of what God's doing because he didn't tell me. The secret things belong to the Lord. Here's something else we don't know. We don't know what God allows and why he allows that. I can know some things God allows because it's going on, but I don't know what all God allows and, and, and why he does it. For example, we can know that God allows trials and tests, but I need to understand that God allowing a trial is not the same as him causing that. So what's Matthew 6, 13 have to do with that? That was in the prayer. It's called the model prayer. It's not often called the Lord's prayer. Lead us not into temptation. 
Now think about that for a moment. If I'm praying to God, lead us not into temptation, that implies there is a circumstance or a time when God does lead us. How does God lead us into temptation? Not by causing us to be tempted, only in the sense that he allows that. God allows us to be tempted. He didn't cause it, but he allows it. You say, how do you know God allows it? Have you been tempted? (laughs) Well, then God allowed it then, didn't he? Job was tested and tried. Job faced a number of things. There was the loss of property and children, chapter 1, verses 6 to 22. He lost his health in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Not only that, I want you to notice that behind the scenes, though, look at Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Notice chapter 1. Go to the book of Job with me quickly and notice in Job chapter 1, beginning at verse 6, what Job never saw that we are able to see is behind the scenes there was a discussion between God and Satan. Notice beginning at verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came among them and the Lord said to Satan, where, uh, where do you, from where do you come? So Satan answered and said, from going forth to and fro in the earth and walking back and forth in it. And the Lord said to Satan, notice at verse 8, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth. And we don't need to read the rest of that to make the point we're making. You see, Satan, what are you doing? Well, I'm walking to and fro in the earth. In other words, parallel to 1 Peter 5 and verse 8, I'm walking about seeing who I I may devour, who, who I can get. Have you thought about Job? Take a look at him. Have you tried him? See, there was this discussion going on in the background concerning Job and Satan himself. And God allowed him to be tempted. God didn't cause it. So here's the point we're making. I can know that God allows trials and temptation. But what's going on in all of that? Job does not see why God allowed that. And therein is the point of the book. I don't know what you were like when you, your first real study of the book of Job. But my first real study when I was young, I started reading the book of Job and I got excited. I couldn't wait to get to the end when God explained it all to Job. I was so disappointed. I thought God was going to explain it to him and tell him exactly what went on. You see, only the reader knows why God is, what God is trying to prove. And that is, he's trying to prove to Satan, Job's faith is genuine. And as I said, we wait eagerly to see if Job's ever told and he's never told. Alfred Edersheim said concerning the book of Job, he said, we cannot understand the meaning of many trials. God does not explain them. To explain them would be to destroy its object, which is that of calling for simple faith and implicit obedience. If we knew why the Lord sent this or that trial, it would thereby cease to be either a trial of faith or of patience. I say amen. Just said, little Baxter said this. He said, the fact is, Job was not meant to know the explanation of his trial. And on this simple fact, everything hangs. If Job had known, there would have been no place for faith. And the man would never have come forth as gold purified in the fire. We are meant to understand there are some things which God cannot reveal to us at the present. Inasmuch as the very revealing of them would thwart his purpose for our good. The scriptures are as wise in their reservation as in their revelation. Enough is revealed to make faith intelligent. Enough is reserved to give faith scope and development. In this, we repeat, lies the message of the book. There was an explanation, but Job did not know it and was not meant to know it. I say amen. 
And what I learned from that is that I may face trials and tribulations and I may go through, and God's allowing that. And what's going on? Why is God allowing that? God didn't tell me. He didn't tell Job either. He didn't tell Job either. He didn't explain it to him. And so you say, I, I'm going through this trial and I know why God's doing this to me. No, you don't. No, you don't. You don't know that. And that's the point we're trying to make. Here's something else we don't know. We don't know the thoughts and the motives of others. We don't know the thoughts and the motives of others. Here's what we can know. I can know the actions I see. I can know what you did. I just saw you do it. You can know what I did. You saw me do it. I'll tell you something else we can know. We can know the thoughts that are revealed. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Turn there with me. This is in the context of Revelation. And an illustration of Revelation is that we don't know the mind of man unless he tells us. So notice chapter 2, verse 11. For what man knows the things of man except the spirit of man that is in him? In other words, you can't know what I'm thinking unless I reveal that to you. But when I tell you, you know what I'm thinking? I've just revealed it to you. Now you know that. So we can know the thoughts that are revealed. There's something else we can know. We can know motives that have been told. If I did something and I tell you the motive for doing that, you now know the motive for that. So you can know my actions, you can know what I've revealed in my thinking, and you can know my motives that I've revealed. Well, let's talk about some things we don't know that we often think we do. We don't know what a person is thinking that they have not revealed. How many times have you ever said, they did so and so, and I know what they were thinking. Really? They reveal it to you. No, you don't know what they were thinking either. We don't know the motive behind actions. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6 and in verse 4. I know this is the context of dealing with false teachers. And in verse 4, one of the things that he might be guilty of is evil suspicions. Bedag says that's an opinion or conjecture based on slight evidence, false suppositions. We are to give the benefit of the doubt. Believe all things. That's the point of that. Some translations will say give the benefit of the doubt. So somebody does something and we say, I know why they did it. I know why they did it. I know what their motive was. Really? Uh, are you taking some slight evidence and conjecturing what their motive was when you don't know that motive and telling everybody? We often do that, don't we? Are you giving them the benefit of the doubt? You saw their actions, but you don't know the reason. You don't know what their motive was. You don't know what they were thinking while they were doing that. So here's what that means to us. What that means is we need to be really careful in judging motives. In other words, I can say, I know I saw them do it, but now why did they do it? I don't know. I don't know. What were they thinking? I don't know what they were thinking. They didn't tell me what they were thinking. That hasn't been revealed. But I do know what they did. We need to learn to distinguish and parse the difference of what we know and what we don't know. How many times have you had somebody come reporting something to you and they tell what happened and then they add a little of the motive that they don't know and so they mix it all together as if they know all of that? Has that ever happened? Sure it has. Have you ever done that? Sure we have. <laughs> here's what happened and here's the reason for it and so we package it all together as if we know all of that. We need to learn to distinguish and parse. I know this, but I don't know this over here. There are things we don't know. 
Don't assign a thought or a motive that you don't know. You say, I know what they're thinking. No, you don't. No, you don't. Uh, Their motive, no, you don't know that either. You don't know. Don't assign a thought or a motive that you don't know. Now, here's the last, and the lesson will be yours. Here's something else we don't know, and that is the future. Now, that doesn't mean I can't know some things about the future because we can know the future that God has revealed. Here's some things I know. I can know the Lord's going to return, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 30, uh, 23. I know that. I know he's coming back. That's the future. I don't know it because the Lord has revealed it. I know there's going to be a judgment day, 2 Corinthians 5, 10. How do I know? Because God said there will be. I know this. I know that there will, the righteous and the wicked will be separated on that day. Because God revealed that. I can know and I do know the righteous will live eternally in heaven because God revealed that to me. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. And I can know that in the future the wicked will burn forever and forever in the devil's hell, Revelation 21 and in verse 8. So I can know some things about the future. But I cannot know the future that has not been revealed and not been promised. How so? We're not promised a future on earth. See, I know the future. I know the Lord's coming back. But what you don't know is something concerning your future here on earth. You don't know that you're going to have a future here on earth. In fact, we don't know that we'll be around for the future plans. Let's go to James chapter 4. We alluded to this passage a little bit earlier in our study. Let's go back and look at some things in the context of James chapter 4. Look at verses 13 to 15. This is in the context of being friends of the world. And one of the attitudes that is part of being friends of the world is being presumptuous about the future as if I know. So beginning at verse 13, he said, come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go into a city and spend a year and buy and sell and make a profit. In other words, we're making plans for the future. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to do this for the next year and for the next year. Here's what we're going to do. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. That is, you don't know the future. For what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little while and then it vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills and we shall live, we'll do this or that. Here's what I learned from that. Here's what this means. What that means is we need to live godly every day of our life because we may not have a future. See, I don't know that I'm going to have a tomorrow. I don't know the future. I know the Lord's coming back. I know there's a judgment day, but I don't know that I'm going to be here tomorrow. But here's something else. We need to think. We need to learn to think and perhaps even say, if the Lord wills. Look at verse 15 again. Those that are saying, you know, today or tomorrow, here's what I'm going to do next week. Here's what I'm going to do next year. I've got plans and here's what's all in the future. As if I know the future. I don't know that. To say the least, we ought to be thinking in our minds, that is, I plan to do this tomorrow or next year or next month, if the Lord wills. We ought to think that way. And it wouldn't hurt us to say it once in a while either. To say, Lord willing, tomorrow I'm going to do thus and so. Lord willing, next year we plan to do thus and so. Because that tells me and reminds me and reminds those who hear me, I don't know the future. I don't know the future. There's just a whole lot we don't know. There are things we know we know. There are things we know we don't know. Rumsfeld was right, wasn't he? But Moses said that a long time before Rummy did. A long time. The secret things belong to the Lord. There are some things we just don't know. What are some things we don't know? We don't know when the Lord's going to return, and we don't know when we're going to die, and we don't know specific acts of providence. 
We don't know specific acts of God ruling in the nations. We don't know why and what God always allows. We don't know the thoughts and the motives of others, and we don't know the future. There's a whole lot we don't know, and we need to be aware that we just don't know it. Things we don't know. You don't know that you'll have another opportunity to obey the gospel. You don't know that you'll have another opportunity to make correction in your life. Would you do that even tonight? We're going to be standing in just a moment singing a song to encourage you to respond. Would you respond tonight and become a Christian if you're not one? Would you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?